Hello, and welcome to the Film Design Podcast. I'm your host, Max Lincoln. Simon Morrissey is primarily a commercials prop master, but he began his career working in film and TV, most notably as the prop master on Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels and the UK leg of Sexy Beast. Yeah, so if you could just explain who you are and, you know, a bit about what you do. Sure, sure. Yeah, um, yeah. my name's Simon Morrissey. I'm a commercials prop master, um, something which I've been doing for about the last 13 years. Before that, 10 years, for the 10 years before that, I worked on film and TV as a, um, basically as a head of department prop master, um, making sure that all dressing props, action props, um, as per the script, were present on the right day, um, on the right set. You know, I would have a, a crew of guys who, um, including props drivers, uh, dressers, standby guys, and um, I would basically run the department. Um, you know, I started off on very low budget film. I got my, a couple of lucky breaks early on in my career. Uh, before that, I actually worked in a prop house. That was how I um, got introduced to the business. Like a lot of people, you you see people's job titles rolling when you at the end of a film that you've watched, and you think, God, I wonder what those people actually do for a living. You know, it's uh, it's a very closed world, and certainly when I was coming into it in the early nineties, it was an extremely closed off and inaccessible profession to get into. So, um, really, yeah, in the last thirteen years, I've I've moved over to deal with commercials, propping, which is a more specialised job, shorter contracts, um, and suit my lifestyle a little bit better. But um, very recently I, I did dip back into the film world and I can talk about that a bit later. So yeah, that's me really. Amazing. And um, what was the prop house you first started working in? Does it still exist? Like, um, what kind of... Well, yes, it... Um, yeah. Yes, it does. It's, uh, I, I started work for Lewis and Kay Hire. Uh, Lewis and Kay Hire, as many people will know, um, are really the the premier sort of collection of glass, china, and and sort of tabletop objects, cutlery. Um, I joined them in 1990, and it was a friend of mine who had got a job there. His brother, coincidentally, was a sort of big name film art director, and he sort of, I think, he made a couple of calls and got his brother in. Maybe not. <laughs> they might contradict me on that, but that's usually <laughs> the way, they're usually the way it works in this Quite industry. Often, yeah. Uh, yeah, and so, you know, I didn't have a job. It was the end of the 80s, fag end of the 80s. Everything was going tits up with the economy. And um, I thought, look, this is, sounds like a great place just to, you know, check in for a couple of years, earn a bit of regular money. You know, I've been sort of ducking and diving through the 80s as a kind of wannabe musician rock star. It hadn't worked out. I was still youngish, but you know, time was sort of pressing, and, uh, and I wanted to earn a bit of money. You know, so I ended up, um, I ended up going to Lewis and Kay Hire, and uh, and it really opened up that world of of um, film and TV props and set dressing, and you know, all the buyers would come in, uh, many of them still working, 
um, you know, 30 years later and we're all still working. That's an amazing thing to think about sometimes. But um, yeah, uh, it really gave me an intro and an introduction to all those buyers and set decorators and production designers who would come in on a daily basis to source props for the various sets that they were uh, designing, dressing or buying for. So that was really how I got in. Yeah, and how did you find when you first transitioned from the prop house to actually be on set? Um, I'm sure you kind of, you know, you knew all the props inside out by then, but how did you find actually physically changing, you know, your outlook and your work method and everything? Exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, that's a really good question because uh, I knew half the job. Uh, essentially, uh, the very first job I got was um, a, a, a set decorator, a guy called Dominic Smithers, um, really did me a favour. He phoned me up one day. He'd been give, sort of giving me little bits of driving, pick-up stuff to do, but it was all very ad hoc, you know, and um, I'd left Lewis and Kay by then. Uh, I don't know. I, essentially, I, I'd got sort of bored of working in the same job. I was there for about three years and... Uh, and I couldn't really see the opportunity because things were very closed off, as I said in those days. You know, if you wanted to work on a BBC production, you had to be a BBC staff member. You know, you'd go to uh, BBC House, have an interview, be taken on full time, P-A-Y-E, uh, if you were, certainly if you wanted to be a prop man. There was no other way, you know. And that was something which just felt very inaccessible. Um, things are different now, and I think it's really great. You know, if you're determined, make a few phone calls, turn up you know then you can get in but back in the day you know it was a bit more you know unless you were son of or uncle your uncle worked certainly as a prop man it was very difficult to get in and um and at Lewis and K we tended to do mostly stuff for costume drama period um so it would be mainly BBC productions with some merchant ivory stuff going on, you know, big films. And like I said, it, it's, um, it, was, it was hard to get in. But um, this set decorator, Dominic Smithers, called me one day and said, look, I need an assistant buyer on um, this ITV production, uh, production you know, Victorian period drama called The Woman in White. And um, I need an assistant. Do you want to do it? And uh, I just said yes. I mean, I hesitated for a moment because it sounded a bit daunting, you know, but, and so that was my break. And uh, as I said, I, I knew kind of half the job. Um, as a buyer, I knew that, you know, there were these places where you went and, you know, you had to do your, fill out your paperwork, you know, do your orders, um, you know, and, but, and I was really thrown in at the deep end and I was going off all over the country and, you know, trying to source props and, and Dominic's a very visual and um, interesting set decorator, you know, uh, with a great eye and uh, a certain unconventional work method, which means that he's not satisfied with you just going to the prop houses that were, you know, up in Park Royal, um, all the big names. He always was kind of more interested if you could get something from a bit left of field and, and find other stuff that other set decorators uh, weren't accessing. You know, so it was a it was a really steep learning curve, really steep learning curve. And I mean, just the sheer pace of the work and the um, and the demands on you and the length of the working day. Um, it was a you know, I was shell shocked, really. I, when I look back on it, you know, it, I was on the production for eight weeks. And um, I mean, it was a steep learning curve, as I said, it really, really was. And uh, but I kind of knew 
I kind of knew I knew how the paperwork worked from the prop house point of view, and uh, but even so, the prop guys would uh, constantly be berating me because I'd I'd run onto set with a sort of a prop that we'd been sort of desperate for, and I'd been set on, you know driving hell to fell for leather up to the location, which would always be out of London, and you know like running in with the and I'd just kind of run in with the prop onto the set and kind of but and they go Simon, you should know better than this, you know you worked at Lewis and Kane, you can't yeah. just bring the prop on you, you got to give it to us, we got to check it off. Where's the note? And I'd be going, oh, but there isn't there isn't a note, guys. You know I just uh, it was in such a hurry, and they'd be like tearing their hair out. No doubt they were saying terrible things about me behind my back, you know, sort of, uh, you know, never turning up with any paperwork, you know, and, uh, but there we go, as I said, really steep learning curve. Um, if I can just briefly, the, the kind of next job I got was, um, and it was just a, it's a lucky break, you know, it's who you know in this industry, it really is, you know, I had a, I got a call, no, a, a friend of mine, a girlfriend of mine, ex-girlfriend, and she'd been sat with the art director guy, Ian Andrews, and he was doing this film, low budget film, um, really low budget film called uh, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels and they tried to get a prop master. Um, they tried every single prop master in London but they were paying a very small amount of money. It was an incredibly low budget film. I think it was about a million for the entire film. Sort of six to eight week shoot, that kind of thing. So really small budget. And they couldn't find anyone and my ex had turned around to him and said, well, I know, I know a prop man. I know someone who does props. I mean... Uh, gave my number and I got a phone call, would you want to come down to Ealing Studios? And uh, and um, and so that was interesting because obviously being a prop master on that film, I was kind of, you know, my previous experience at the prop house was a lot more applicable because I knew that I would get the props delivered to me with a note and that I knew that I had to make sure that everything that came on that note was actually present and I knew that I would either have a week or two weeks or whatever the higher period was to get that stuff onto the set, dressed, checked back and back to the prop house. And I knew that side of it, that if I didn't do that, the costs would mount up pretty quickly and production would start, you know, accounts would start getting a lot of bills um, for stuff that we didn't really need. So that side of it, I did know. I didn't know anything about set etiquette. I didn't know anything about dressing a set, really. Uh, I didn't know anything about running a team of guys, drivers. But I, I learned on the job, and it was a it was a, a steep learning curve once again. But it was a fantastic experience working on that film. I mean, the script when you first read it, I read it in one sitting. I just thought it was fantastic. It was so funny. Um, I mean, it seems a bit old hat now in a way, you know. Um, I get a bit of ribbing about always going on about working on Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. You know, some people sort of, my old mate Guy Ritchie kind of thing. And uh, But it was, uh, I mean, it was made so many people's careers in this industry. It really did. And it was a fantastic, fantastic experience. Everyone seemed to be learning on the job, you know, in the actors, everyone. You know, and it was a good cast. I mean, I bumped into some some of the guys. Even last year, I hadn't seen them. Dexter Fletcher, for example, who's who's uh, directing now. He's he amazing. Uh, yeah, I saw him um, uh, on the fag end of Rocket Man. We were just I turned up for a couple of days to do some reshoot stuff. I hadn't seen him for since nineteen ninety seven. 
Um, the same with a, you know, a lot of people that you know you occasionally bump into, you know, who are, who are industry titles now, you know, and back in the day, you know, they the the you know production they were struggled to get that film into production, you know, that we, you know, so so my experience really in the prop house to bring it back to that, um, yeah, was more applicable as a straight up prop master role, you know, I knew that the you know, the, the notes were everything. You know, I had to keep a track on all the props. I had to know where stuff was. It had to go back at a certain time. You know, because you, if you're working on a week's hire, you pick up the props on day one, you maybe transport them, check them day two, dress them onto the set day three, you know, shoot them day four, strike them day five. Then you've got the sixth day you know, to really either get them back or if it's a weekend, often by then it's Saturday, you've got to get the stuff back on the Sunday, uh, on the Monday rather, which is the seventh day. So it's a tight schedule, you know, really and most, yeah, really tight. And, and you've got to be on top of that. And at the same time, you're picking up the props for the next day, you know, you're striking yesterday's set, you're dressing tomorrow's set, and you're kind of keeping a weather ear out for what's going on on today's set. So it's a real juggling act. And on low-budget films, you haven't got a lot of people. You tend to do long hours. You certainly didn't get paid overtime. Uh, but the great thing about it was you really learned on the job. And, um, and that film opened a lot of doors for me because, you know, a year later when that came out and it was a, it was a smash hit, it really was. And, um, you know, suddenly you found that when you were mentioning that, you were ringing people up and asking for work that was getting you interviews and that was getting you jobs. So, um, yeah, I learned a lot on that film. I really did. Amazing. And um, so these days you work prim- well, primarily in commercials, let's say. Um, mm. Could you talk about commercials and what you do on a daily basis and, you know, things like that? Really? Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly. Well, well, commercials propping is a lot more focused, you know, and um, it's a lot more product orientated, obviously. You know, I mean, that's why we're there on the job, really. It's all about the product. Um, so you, you find yourself less... I mean, I don't deal with any of the paperwork anymore. Um, I don't have that um, responsibility to, of the transportation, the collection and the return of props. Um, so, and, and you tend not to have the prep time that you would obviously on a film. I mean, on a film, I would be used to getting four to six weeks prep and... Um, and obviously, as a result of that, you would be expected to have a completely forensic knowledge of the script and what was happening on any given day. And there would be no excuse for not knowing that. Now, the interesting thing about working on commercials is that you can roll up on the morning, on the day of the shoot, and it's almost socially acceptable to turn around and just go, what are we doing? Because you've had no input up to that point of walking in, in on the morning to find out what's going on. And, uh, and at that point, you're told what's, you're, what you've got to do. You know? So sometimes that, if, you, if you can live with that kind of uncertainty of not knowing quite what it is that you're going to be asked to do when you turn up at work, um, then there's something uh, that's challenging because... Uh, you've, you've just got to, ultimately you've just got to accept that you're not in control of that and you've just got to turn up and do the best that you can um, but in a way it's quite liberating whereas if you're working on a production where you've got like I said six to eight weeks perhaps you haven't really got any excuses at all for not having things having all your ducks in a row you know you've got to be organised 
you've got to be on it. Um, so commercials, it's a different feel. Um, time pressure is big, you know, it's a very long working day, uh, tend to be quite a lot of shoots, it's close up. Um, you know, so what fewer things are in shot, are generally there's more importance attached to them. It's more of a, um, it's more of a team collaboration with a lot more people having input on what's happening on the screen. Uh, certainly with uh, the, the props that you're working with, there's layers and layers of input that go way beyond the director and the art director. Whereas really on film, the wonderful thing about film is you can have an idea and put something in front of the camera. And if the director likes it, if that one person likes it, it's in, you know. So when you're doing film, you look back and there's stuff that you'd have done on films, which you can see, you know, 25 years later, you can see something on a wall behind someone's head or something in someone's hand that they're using. And you think, well, that was my idea. Whereas in commercials, it's very rarely your idea. You know, it's, it's already been worked out by, you know, from the client, the agency, all down through the director, obviously. Um, it's a multi-layered, multi, you know, sort of input and, and team kind of orientated work setting, you know. But saying that, there are, there are, other, there are other challenges, you know. It's, uh, it's much more close up, you know, it's much more detailed. Um, and also, you know, it's, as I said, it, it's, it's product driven, you know, you have to have the right product, you know, and it sounds simple, but you know, you, you have, you know, fit, you know, different products, which have to be, you know, shot in certain ways. And it has to be, cause you're selling stuff. It has to be right. You know, it absolutely has to be right. Um, you can't put the wrong product in front of the camera you know, for a particular setting, you know, it's, it's or the, the right size product, you know. If you're advertising the 500ml bottle of shampoo and you stick the 350ml in or something like that and they shoot it, that's a problem, you know. So you've got to be on top of the product. Um, apart from that, it's got to look good, you know, everything's got to look good. Um, yeah, so that's the focus. It's really product focus, whereas... But then there's still, there's art involved in it, you know. I mean, I know I've spoken to a lot of art directors and they'll say, you know, there's more art involved in the, the prop side of commercials than there is, you know, in film. Whereas you would have thought dressing a set, that's, it is, it's great. But ultimately you're hanging pictures, you're, you know, putting curtains up, you know, whereas sometimes with product and the way things have got to move in front of the camera, it's really, it can get, extremely complicated and I mean for example it's, it's, it's a stupid thing but I was doing a an almond milk commercial um, uh, last year in, in October and they wanted the almond to be dancing around on the on the set you know just a, you know, it's a little move it wasn't massively you know so they didn't want to pay for that to be done in special effects and they didn't couldn't afford a puppeteer so it, they end up with me with an almond on a pin that I had through the bottom of the set we had it raised up on on um steel decking and uh and yeah you know I was just with a monitor underneath I was doing little movements very minute movements of this arm and just to make it look you know like it was alive I mean funny funny little things and when you watch it on tv 
it, it makes you laugh because you think, God, you know, that was, you know, it's, it, it's so funny things like that, you know, fun, just little tiny, you know, but you've got to be prepared, you know, have you got uh, on that, on the day, have you got a pin long enough to stick the almond on, you know, you, you, you come to rely on your kit, you know, all that kind of thing, you know, you're, you have to take responsibility for stuff, you know, I personally never did any standby on films, so I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of film standbys would say, oh, it's exactly the same, you know, it's just you commercials guys get paid more, but, but um, also the lack of script is the other thing, you know, it's, uh, it's quite liberating really to have a, you know, not to have a film size script which you've got to digest. So that's really the, the, the main difference. Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned about the almond dancing. I can remember tons of weird and wonderful things I've done on set. Um, can you think of any other kind of strange, random situations you found yourself in? Well, random situations. I mean, it's all. It, most of it strikes you as ran, uh, as random and uh, strange, you know. And uh, I mean, that's just the nature of the job, really. You know. I mean, you know, how many times have you looked round at your fellow crew members, and all of you have got that same expression on your face? You know, what the hell are we doing here? You know, do it, doing this. You know. I mean, it's uh, it's all bizarre. You know, and that's the wonderful thing about it. You know, it's. Uh, it's crazy, but at the same time, it's serious. You know, you have to seriously engage with the job, you know. And it's crazy. It's not, you know, we're not saving lives and we're not, you know, we're not driving ambulances or working in the, in the blessed NHS, you know, as so many of our fellow citizens are now. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's a crazy job, you know. It makes no sense, you know, but you have to totally take it seriously, you know. And when you're into the 16th, 17th, hour of the day you know and you're exhausted and you still got to take it seriously you know you, you just got to you've got to get into it but yeah I mean um I mean I'm racking my brains now I mean you know last year I was I was in the jungle in um in Thailand I, I actually went back and did a film the first time in uh, since 2008 which I'd done a uh, which I've been involved in film and I went and did um there's a charge hand standby on Fast and Furious 9 you know and and that was that was crazy. I mean, we had these crash test dummies that were. I mean, the film hasn't come out yet, so I've got to be a little bit careful about what I say. It was slated for a release in April, but it's been unfortunately put back due to the coronavirus, you know. And um, and so we were lugging uh, crash test dummies that were vaguely made up as the as the stars of the of the film, you know, who were going to be in the cars, you know, and uh, just as a precaution, they were driven by stuntmen, but if there was any passenger in the vehicle, you know, they don't want to risk another stunt person, so they're going to put a dummy in. And so we were just, you know, like carrying these dummies through the jungle at times to, you know, put them into the cars. And it was just, uh, it was backbreaking work, you know. It was, uh, you know, it was like they were, they weighed 80 kilos each. They were properly articulated you know, life weight size dummies, you know, and uh, so yeah, it was like, you know, felt like being an extra in the Vietnam War, you know, like carrying these uh, casualties through the jungle, you know, but, um, but yeah, so many bizarre stories. I mean, that's the, the wonderful thing about the film industry, you know, the, you know, you end up with so many, so many great memories, you know, you really do, so many great memories of crazy situations and, and, and access to fantastic places that you get, you know, access that no member of the public could ever expect, you know, and uh, usually, you know, you're under strict 
strict orders when you first arrive at any location. Oh, you can't do this, you can't do that, can't go here, you can't do that. Once you've been there a couple of days, you know, all that goes out the window. You know, suddenly the, if you get on with everyone, then the lo location owners or, or your friends, they, they don't mind you going there. They, they're interested in showing you stuff. And you, you just get such fantastic access to places. You really do. It's, it's one of the real privileges of the job. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I, I remember being um, on the top of a tower that no member of the public can access or even mm. the staff members. Um, and just seeing incredible unrestricted views of London that literally no one apart from a window cleaner would ever see. Yeah, um, yeah. Ab absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's a real privilege. Yeah. So um, as as we are in the depths of quarantine, um, what are you doing to kind of keep yourself, I don't know, artistically motivated, let's say? Well, you know, um, I'm doing, you know, I, I've been going through my kit and kind of having a bit of a sort out. Um, and I've been uh, doing odd jobs at home, you know, which has been quite good. There's a lot more I could do, uh, but the sun's been out. We, I mean, we've been very lucky. We've been enjoying the most fantastic weather, really, for the lockdown. And I keep on reminding myself that, you know, if it had been raining every day, it would be a very different mental sort of situation that we'd all be in. But, I mean, the weather's been fantastic. I'm lucky enough to be down on the coast at the moment, I've been in London for about six weeks, and uh, and it's it's beautiful, you know. And uh, but you know, there's a lot of work I could be doing around the house. And I think in the first week, I decided that I was going to paint the annex, and um, and I was uh, I was really worried that all the DIY and paint suppliers were going to shut down. And so I, I put a big order in as well, you know. And so that turned up, you know, the following week, and uh, it still sat there with all the lids on, and I haven't even started to. You know, and my wife keeps saying to me, when are you going to start that painting? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I, I, must, I must get on with the painting. It's really important, you know. But, but really, I, um, you know, so much of propping is practical skills. And, you know, it's, it's the, one of the benefits of, of being a, a prop master is, you know, that especially in commercials, you usually have fantastic kit. You know, you've got all the tools and... Um, and so, you know, I've been trying to put those to use where I can. And um, I've been watching uh, stuff as well. You know, I've been watching various TV series and, um, you know, just to, just to look at other people's work. It's a good opportunity to catch up on stuff and, you know, various films and, you know, maybe even stuff that you've worked on. It's sometimes quite interesting, stuff that you haven't seen for many years. So, um yeah, and but just basically, I've been trying to enjoy it because, you know, the, the, the one of the problems in the industry is that you you know you could never seem to get the right level of work. Either you're crazy busy, and the rest of your life is totally put on hold, uh, and you're just working and working and working to the detriment of everything else, or the opposite. You know, you've got no work. You're sat at home. You could be worried about where the next paycheck's coming from etc etc so you know I always try now to just enjoy whatever's happening if I'm working it's great and I try and enjoy it you know and and the opposite is true you know if I'm sat at home there isn't any work uh, and this quarantine period it almost takes the pressure off in that because you know that no one's working you know so you may be sat at home you haven't got any work if you know everyone else is working you start to think oh well you know maybe it's me 
you know, that I, you know, I should have work, I haven't got any work, start stressing about it. And to a certain extent, we've got no control over that now, you know. Um, why worry about it? Um, the, the powers that be will decide when we're able to work again. And um, I just know that when we all do go back, we'll be so much more appreciative of what a fantastic opportunity we do have in working in this industry, you know. It's easy to take it for granted when we're busy all the time. And I think you do need a period away from it periodically to recharge your batteries because it is all consuming and, you know, very long hours. So I'm just trying to appreciate being away from it, you know, and and just hoping that in a couple of months at the most, you know, we'll be back working and, and, and busy, you know, because I'm sure all these companies that are unable to do business at the moment, they'll be wanting to let everyone know that they're back in business. And they're either they're doing their business in a different way, they're supplying different services, whatever it is, they're going to want to get that information out there. And so I'm really, really hoping that we're going to come back strong and, um, and there'll be plenty of work for all of us. I reckon so. I've been, um, there's been quite a few um, videos out of all the quarantine adverts that have been released. Mm. And um, I mean, they're, they're kind of hilarious because they've all followed the same pattern some are using yeah. Zoom or video recording, but most of them have zero design or art department. Yes. And, or do um, they? Or do they? I'm always looking and thinking, hang yeah, on a minute, I mean, hang on a minute. Is it- yeah, I think a lot of them are kind of stock footage type yeah, yeah. things. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I kind of feel like, I mean, a few of the, the Zoom-based ones I've seen and they look like they've been marginally designed, but, I, you know, I think you know, the advertising industry is probably craving someone to zhuzh a pillow or um, exactly. <laughs> hang hang a picture straight in the back of one of their... Exactly. Adverts. I mean, I mean, they all do look pretty grim, don't they? Um, and uh, and I do, I do think that sometimes. Is it just the producer is once in a while remembering to plump the cushion up and then nine times out of ten he's not, you know, and who can blame him? That's not his job, you know. But, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's one of the things I've been thinking about, the... You know, how do you socially distance on a film set? I know that I read, for example, yesterday that Neighbours is going to be back shooting in Australia. And they're talking about dividing the set into four areas and only having people working in each of those areas. I've heard other people say that the, the you know, it's the protection of the artists is going to be the key thing. Um, and so they're going to have minimal crew. You know, the producer and the DOP won't even be in the room. They'll be watching on um, monitors and it will probably be only art department, minimal other crew. You know, you won't have hair and makeup just walking onto set and doing a little bit of titivation. You know, that's going to be taken away and done off screen. And then the artist brought on just to have minimum, minimum people around the camera, you know. So it will be a real challenge. Um, but, you know, business is business. And yeah. Uh, you know, I I think that they'll po- probably just get us to sign to sign waivers. You know, there'll be a lot more medical checks on set. Probably have our temperatures taken at the beginning of the day, etc. But ultimately, we'll be asked to bear the risk um, for our own health. You know, to a certain degree, to a certain degree, because otherwise, that we just won't get insurance, and nothing will happen without the insurance. Yeah, it's funny, um, at the end of the day, they're the ones with the real power, it would seem. Mm, um, yeah. 
But yeah, amazing. Thanks for so much for having you on. And um, I look forward to hopefully seeing you on set soon. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh, it's really good of you, Max. It was quite interesting, actually, to think about the... Uh, uh, to think about the job again in that kind of detail, you know, because it is a, you know, once again, it's a fantastic opportunity, a great work, great industry in this country, you know, one that has probably never been stronger up until this uh, coronavirus break, you know, I mean, record numbers of productions and, and, and work, you know, really good opportunity for young people to come into this industry at this time. So let's hope we're all back working soon. And uh, yeah, thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. The show's intro was composed by Sam McGrell, mixed by Max Bloom, and the artwork was created by Alec Jagodzinski.